You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 7th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As we announced in several recent shows, energy expert Eric Jumon, a longtime supporter of the show, generously offered to answer questions submitted by our subscribers. You may remember Eric from episode 20, in which we talked about grid evolution. Eric has an unusually deep and broad grasp of the big, sprawling topic of energy transition, and he enjoys a challenge. And our audience of hardcore energy geeks did not disappoint. So we sent him your questions, and now it's finally time to hear his answers. We'll talk about some of the non-climate effects of climate change, whether we even need to keep investing in climate research, what the reliable indicators of the global energy transition might be, how much seasonal storage we'll need, whether science adequately informs energy policy, the outlook for market reforms that value storage, the outlook and potential role for solar thermal plants equipped with storage, and we finish with a deep dive down the rabbit hole of resource adequacy, in which Eric picks apart the methods of ensuring it, including capacity markets, out-of-market payments, wholesale market reforms in the PJM, operating reserve demand curves, value of lost load calculations, and reserve margins. So this episode is a bit like climbing a mountain. It starts off on a gentle slope with a geek factor of one and gets very steep at the top, probably at a geek factor above 10. And my apologies in advance if I have mispronounced the names of the subscribers who sent in these questions. Then in the news segment, we'll talk about an amazing new solar and storage project in Australia, the energy aspects of the new U.S. federal budget, a massive new solar project in Nevada, and some exciting new electric ferries and cargo ships. And now, our Q&A with Eric Shimon, recorded February 10th, 2018. So let's bring him back to the conversation. Welcome back, Eric, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you. It's great to be back. So our first questions are from subscriber Esmond Treseder, a passive house designer in the Western Highlands of Scotland, who runs a company called Highland Passive. S is thinking about how we should respond to climate change. So first off, recognizing that climate scenarios range from pretty bad to catastrophic, how sensitive are Earth systems, other than climate and weather, to future greenhouse gas emissions, rising temperatures, and the other effects of a changing climate? Granted, that's a pretty wide open question, but maybe you can decide what other Earth systems you want to talk about. Well, so you've had some pretty impressive Earth system scientists on the show who could give you more of an expert response than that. But I think it's interesting to think about this from the point of view of a science-educated layman. So climate and weather is a pretty broad thing to talk about. You know, my understanding from reading is that we've been in a very stable pocket of the kind of geo system of the Earth for over the last 10, 15,000 years, which is probably not a coincidence that that's when agriculture and most of civilization developed. And so how would that become at risk? So apart from changes in climate and rainfall, 
You know, one thing that temperature increase does is it increases evaporation. So, for example, in California, we had the drought. The drought was partially because we weren't getting as much water as normal, but also because with higher temperatures, you get more evaporation. So the ground loses more moisture. And these are kind of small, everyday things. They're not like the, the big spectacular in the newspaper, you know, days without rain and so on, but they stack up. And so one big worry is that you see more droughts. And a bad version of that would be in the Amazon forests. So the Amazon forest, the rainforest there is a pretty key system for the earth system. And those forests could start burning and then you get a feedback loop. So a big worry is getting into feedback loop where something that we're doing affects another system, which then makes things worse. Mm. The other kinds of things you see in California, for example, where I live is changes in the snow rain mix. So the temperature changes just a little bit. And where you were getting snow, you now get rain. So now you get water coming down into your reservoirs and into your rivers in the wintertime or the springtime instead of staying in the snowpack to provide you water year-round. There's some very important sensitivities like that. And so a major version of the snow rain mix is also something you're seeing with the glaciers in the Himalaya where they're slowly melting away. So they're still providing that resource of water to India and Southeast Asia. But when those glaciers melt, they're really going to have a big problem with water management for those river systems. Yeah. And then, I don't want to be the doom and gloom here, but, you know, it's kind of the question. Where are the areas of concern? You know, we don't know exactly what will happen, but these are areas that one worries about. Another big area is ocean acidity. The ocean absorbs about half of the CO2. When the CO2 gets absorbed, the ocean becomes slightly more acidic. And that makes life difficult for these little planktons that have to grow shells. And also makes life very difficult for corals. So there's an interesting question then about how the increased acidity of the oceans is going to affect life in the oceans. And life in the oceans is very important to us. Yeah, it's the base of the food chain, right? It's the base of these food chain. And then there's other feedback issues that you have to worry about. So methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. And as you warm up the permafrost in the north, you start releasing more methane. There's also these things called methane clathrates that are kind of solid frozen methane in the bottom of the ocean. And so as you change the dynamics in the ocean, they might start melting off and releasing methane. And we know that this is something that's happened in the past. So luckily it doesn't seem to be happening yet. Yeah. What we really know from the past, I recommend an interesting book called Under Green Skies by Peter Ward, who's a paleobiologist at University of Washington. And he argues that basically almost every mass extinction event has been driven by climate change. And he kind of describes how that works. And it's a pretty scary. And when I talk to my scientist friends about it, None of them were willing to tell me, like, don't worry about it, or like, that's not going to happen. Maybe yeah. they don't know that much about it or whatever, but the fact that they can't rule it out kind of freaks me out. And another good book that I recommend that interested me came out maybe uh, 12 years ago. It's called Thin Ice by Mark Bowman, and he explores tropical glaciers, so glaciers that are at really high altitude and measure ice cores. And then he connects that to some of what we've learned from that, like the rise and fall of various civilizations in South America and so on. It's a very interesting book. Interesting. Okay, cool. All right. So secondly, S wants to know if we should continue funding climate research and trying to understand the impacts of climate change, or do we already know enough that we should just put all our resources into energy transition and try to get to a zero carbon economy as quickly as possible? 
So that's a very interesting question. And you have to ask yourself, who is we? Is we the people, we the government, we scientists? There are different actors involved here. And so people who are doing research and analyzing satellite data don't suddenly get converted to installing solar panels. And so there's, of course, the issue of resource allocation. So you should ask, how much money are we spending today? So all the agencies in the federal budget that could have a role in analyzing climate probably have a budget of about $40 billion a year. That's maybe 1% of the total federal budget, 3% of what's discretionary. Mm -hmm. Of that $40 billion, maybe something like $8 billion gets actually spent on R&D, and some of that might be related to climate. So let's say you're being generous to say it's about $8 billion being spent on that. Already, we're spending about $14 billion on renewable energy subsidies and research, maybe another $17 billion on biofuels. Some of these are rough numbers. I wouldn't take them as fiat, but that gives you an idea already of what we're doing. And so I don't think by draining the research budget, you're going to do very far in terms of accelerating deployment. And right. accelerating deployment isn't just about money. It's about rules and uh, kind of societal priorities and so on. I mean, energy is 9% of the world's GDP, or at least the U.S. GDP. So it's a big system to affect. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess what really was most provocative to me about Asa's question was this question of the climate research need. Like... We're researching climate, why? Like, if we already know that climate change is a real problem and we already know we have to do something about it and we already have a pretty good idea of what to do about it, we're already doing things about it, how much more do we need to study this? Like, yeah. what's the value in additional, I don't know, whatever it is, more discrete data or whatever? You know, I don't think we're just dotting the I's and crossing the T's here. There's still a lot of unknowns, how fast various systems will respond, how different greenhouse gases affect the mix, what's going on with the impact of black dust. I went to a conference maybe 20 years ago of people who were looking at the effect of black carbon, so basically like burnt stuff showing up in the Arctic, and they right. had never met with each other, and they didn't really know. So there's unknowns that are useful to improve on. There's also kind of issues with attribution. Who exactly is putting out carbon? If we're putting that global carbon price, we need to know what's happening. Is what people report close to what's actually happening? And also, as we try to start trying to mitigate the problem, we want to know how good we are at mitigating it. So, you know, there might be solutions you could do to improve the health of coral reefs or something like that, that might be more localized, and you want to know how that works. So I think... In general, it's just not a good idea to be driving blind down a windy road with lots of cliffs. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. I mean, I guess ultimately the, the implication in that question is, will further climate research guide us toward better or more appropriate responses? And I guess the answer is yes, it could. Yeah. I mean... We saw the big rocket that SpaceX put up, right? And right. you've got these major rockets, and then you have these little like side thrusters. Yeah. I think the science goes into making sure the big rocket goes in the right place. At some level, you know, but you know what the rocket has to do. You know, you know it's got to lift a lot of weight off the ground. That part's not that hard to understand. You don't need fancy orbital mechanics, but if you want to get the rocket to the right place, if you want to steer things and so on, if you want the boosters to come back down to the ground, then you need more fancy stuff. Right, right. 
Oh, that's a good way to look at it. Okay, so our next questions are from Charles Waringham, a subscriber from Down Under, who's a former academic and political spokesperson for the Greens. He spent a month touring India recently by train to visit numerous energy experts and social enterprises to try to really understand the energy story there. So first of all, bravo, Charles. Love that. So anyway, his question is, what are the three or four most informative, accessible, objective, and frequently updated indicators of global energy transition. So once again, that's informative, accessible, objective, and updated. Yeah, that's a very good question. I ask kind of, how do those questions apply to myself? I would say, I look carefully at figures about how much capacity of clean energy resources is being installed, how much they're actually generating. So for example, in China, there's been a lot of problems with stuff being installed, but curtailing a lot of it. Financial flows are very important, but you have to kind of moderate that with some knowledge of what prices are. So prices are interesting because they drive things, but they're not really indicators. But financial flows are indicators, but you need to know about prices to understand what they mean. So that's all on the kind of positive side of clean energy deployment. Then you want to look at what you're trying to replace, the fossil fuel system. So how are the fossil fuel companies doing? Are they increasing their production? Are they decreasing their production? What's their financial outlook looking at? What are their stocks worth? And a lot of that information is pretty readily available and you know objective. So if you see certain companies go under in Germany because they didn't invest in renewables, that's a sign that there was some pretty major change in the energy system in Germany. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I would also say that I like to look at EIA data. It's not real good on the international side, but it's quite good on the U.S. side. But of course, for his purposes, I guess he'd have to be looking at IEA data because that has more of an international flavor. I don't know what sort of really good data resources are there for Australia's energy system specifically. I mean, I suppose AMO publishes some good stuff. Yeah, AMO publishes some good stuff. It's often a country-by-country -country effort to kind of get a sense of the energy statistics. And so I work more day-to-day -day in the US, so I'm more familiar with the US data sets. And even there, I'm always like discovering new ones or finding problems with old ones. EIA is a good resource for kind of getting an understanding of what's actually being generated when and where, Yeah, but not a great resource for things like costs. Right. And Australia, I think, is actually quite transparent on a lot of things. I've seen various articles on the Renew Economy website where they show pretty granular information about how much energy is coming from residential solar rooftops that we don't have as much information like that in the U.S. Oh my gosh, the EIA data on that is just abysmal. Yeah. It's worthless, really. For India, it's a little harder, obviously, and I think the people I know rely more on what's happening in the financial papers. Hmm. to see what's happening to various coal plants and so on. There are some government reports and some pretty good nonprofits that report back, but the quality of information is not nearly as high. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would really be my first, sort of my knee-jerk answer to his question is just look at the stock market data. You know, you can tell a lot from the behavior of different companies. Of course, there's a lot of additional factors that'll come into play, you know, like if they did a debt raise or something, change their dividends or, you know, if their costs exploded or whatever the case may be. There's a billion things that can change that. But you can also look at the stock market from a sector standpoint in a number of different ways. And that can, I think, actually be a pretty useful indicator of how things are going. Yeah. 
It's amazing how different indicators can clash. So I had a conversation, I'm on the board of a foundation. So I had a conversation with the chief investment officer after a trip to China and I was telling her, well, I'm amazed at how much the Chinese are keen to lower emissions because of the air quality issues and how we're gonna see like peak coal a lot sooner than we expected. This was maybe back in 2015. Hmm. And she said, well, I've just talked to all the coal plant equipment supplier guys and they're seeing a big bonanza and they're selling more than ever. And I was huh. asking myself, how do those two come together? <laughs> well, what we saw was that China has this strange system where they allocate energy generation by shares. And so people were kept building coal plants because they were still getting shares. But overall, the coal plant, the fleet was getting less and less. The capacity factors were going down. The fleet was generating right. less and less. Right. So, and we've seen the same thing happen actually in India. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so putting together different indicators can really help you get to a more interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. So our next question is from Sam Vieja. Sam wants to know about the need for seasonal storage. So considering that battery storage, demand response, and other technologies are helping to make it possible to accommodate a growing share of variable wind and solar on the grid, and that we're all trying to decarbonize our energy systems, some of us may need to grapple actually with the need for seasonal storage maybe sooner than others, particularly in like high latitude locations with short winter days and very cold winter temperatures like Sam's home state of Minnesota. So is there any good research yet on exactly how much seasonal storage we'll need and when? Well, I think there are the beginnings, the green shoots of research. There's some work that folks at MIT did, like Jesse Jenkins, that point to the idea that we need maybe two weeks of full generation. So say the US, just take 4% of the annual generation mix, and that give you an idea. And I've seen similar analyses from CPI. Most of the storage you need is during the day, but there's some remaining fraction that's seasonal. The question is kind of what to do with that information. You know, some people have an agenda. I try to look at it objectively in terms of what's happening in today's system and ask how much do we store in the natural gas caverns and then convert that into electricity. And we do store about two weeks worth of consumption in the caverns every year. So it seems like today's system is kind of oriented around about a two week worth of seasonal storage. Hmm. I didn't know we had that much storage in caverns. Yeah. But the question is, is storage what we're going to need when we get to high fractions of renewables? You know, we're at a 10% level today. So we still have a lot of resources to cover seasonal uh, issues. So if I'm living in Minnesota and I've got an off-grid solar system for my cabin by the lake to go ice fishing or whatever, <laughs> then maybe I need a lot of seasonal storage or I need to have too many panels to cover my needs in the winter and more than cover my needs in the summer. But once I'm interconnected in the grid, the story is a lot different. And in Paul Denholm and companies like Key Paper from NREL a while back on the value of storage, they have this kind of flow chart of how you manage flexibility. And storage is usually the most expensive and last thing to deploy. So if you connect through transmission, if you have more demand side flexibility, more economic elasticity, then you need less storage. Well, this is the thing that, as regular listeners to the show will certainly be aware, that I've objected to about the storage claim was that we don't really need 
a large amount of seasonal storage now. We have this general idea that we're going to need more of it later as we get to higher percentages of renewables. So then the question really becomes, when do we get there? Like, when do we actually think we're going to need this seasonal energy storage? And then what are the best options at that point? And between here and there, we have this very unknowable path of which kinds of resources are going to become available at a good price, you know, that they're going to be selected when we get to that point. Maybe we have, you know, different kinds of resources available then than we have now. Maybe we have different kinds of storage systems available then than we have now. Maybe, for example, maybe uh, low temperature heat storage becomes kind of more of a thing 10 or 20 years from now when we might really need that than it is now. And so I guess my objection has been, why do we have to know to any degree of precision, how much seasonal storage we're going to need 10 or 20 years from now when we can just as easily let the system evolve and make that determination when we need it. Well, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think the opposite view would be, you know, why close your eyes to a problem you know is going to be a problem? And I think it's, it's like you said, there's so much uncertainty that we can't really describe the issue, describe the problem. And so I think what it means is that for today, we should be investing in R&D efforts to look at things as like ammonia storage and so on as alternatives for seasonal storage. But I don't think it's worth doing like a crash course effort to create a very specific technology or amount of resource for a need we're not quite sure we're going to have or we're not quite sure how much we're going to need. The other thing to keep in mind is energy transition is happening in a society and an economy that's evolving around it. So why is Boeing in Seattle? Because that's where they had cheap electricity for aluminum. Hmm. And why do they have cheap electricity for aluminum? Because that's where they had all the hydro. And right. so over time, the economy adjusts and evolves around what's happening to prices and costs. And that rarely happens very quickly, but over long periods of times can result in major shifts. Yeah, it can. And just, again, as you pointed out earlier, I think some of the people that are arguing for, you know, knowing how much seasonal storage we're going to need in the future are really doing so because they, as you say, had an agenda. They really want to see us building nuclear plants, for example, and they know that it's going to take, you know, 20 years of effort <laughs> to actually get them built. And so they're trying to make an argument for why they'll be needed 20 years from now. But again, as I've said many times on this show, I don't think that's what energy transition is about. I think with energy transition, given the uncertainty and given the rapid pace of change for all the technologies that we're working with here, we should be driving within the range of our headlights. There's no need to be building now or even trying to, you know, form capital around building plants that are going to be needed in 20 years. I just don't see the need for that or even storage for that matter. Yeah, well, it goes back to the earlier question about should we be spending money on R&D versus deployment? And there's different parts that we invest resources in. And like you said, in terms of deployment, it may not be the right time to go beyond our headlights. In terms of R&D, I think it's a good priority for an outfit like ARPA-E or Energy Efficiency Renewable part of DOE to think about these things. These are not like light arguments. It's definitely something that could be an issue. Yeah. All right, so we can move on now to our 
Next provocative question from subscriber Seb Rotansen, a PhD candidate at the Australian German Climate and Energy College at the University of Melbourne. Seb's PhD thesis is aimed at understanding the degree to which energy research and evidence actually informs Australian energy policymakers as they prepare Australia's commitments under the Paris Climate Accord. And he wants to hear your views on how well we're doing at letting science inform policy in the U.S. Do American energy policymakers, particularly at the Department of Energy, use research and evidence and expertise competently uh, in their policymaking efforts, or do they cherry-pick the data? And are there differences across various government departments in this respect? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I can see, especially watching Australia's political dynamics, at least the way I watch them on the Renew Economy website, it, one could kind of throw up our hands and be a little discouraged. In the US, the story is pretty nuanced. I suspect it is in Australia too. The question is where policy is happening. So a lot of policy happens at the state level in public utility commissions and governor's energy offices, some legislation. And at the national level, some of the policy is driven by more political agencies and some is driven by independent agencies. So a good example is a top priority for this White House has been supporting coal. That priority transformed at the Department of Energy into a request for a report on resiliency and the importance of resilience and how things like coal power contribute to that. And then we saw the professional staff prepare a report that didn't really support what the political masters wanted. So already you see kind of a difference at the kind of top political level versus the agency staff as to kind of how you treat evidence and science for policymaking. So then you got this strange report that kind of pointed one way and then had a kind of political overlay on top. And then from that report, the Department of Energy used a, a, a very unused power to suggest a rule change to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC, that in very quick order provide money for coal plants to stick around. And then that ran into the full wall of the independent agency system with appropriate deliberation and was shut down by 5-0 vote of the commissioners, even though the commissioners were recently appointed by the White House and the person who was running the commission and then turned over seat, Chatterjee, was the top aide to Mitch McConnell on energy issues and so had very clear views about the importance of coal. So I think what really protects us in the US is the independent agencies and a, a tradition of upholding the law and using due process. The same thing happens at the state level with the PUCs. You know, people have a chance to bring their arguments. The commissioners have to rule on what they see in the record. And I think that works pretty well in terms of creating science-informed policymaking. Yet, there's still always politics. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. But, you know, I'll revisit a point that I've brought up a few times on the show. And, and that is that back in around 2006, 2007, I remember that there was this big push toward biofuels under the George W. Bush administration. And that seemed to me to be very politically driven. We already had plenty of research to show that the EROI of corn ethanol was abysmally low, that it probably therefore did not make a good fuel or even a good fuel strategy for the United States. But that evidence never informed policy. The policy was driven entirely by the political fact that 
you know, the presidential road tour starts in Iowa, which is corn country. So, you know, I think Seb has a, an interesting question here as to how well are we able to inform and maybe there's no one answer, right? Maybe in some cases we do a good job of it. In other cases, politics simply overrides. And that's true. And I think, look, to be, you know, completely honest, I think politics has to have a role. I mean, politics, we often see the dark side of politics, you know, like kind of ag states collecting their chips over 10 years and then putting them all down when it's time for the farm bill. But it also plays an important role of like communicating what the general population wants and not letting kind of technocrats decide everything. You know, if the technocrats in Germany had decided everything, they would have built a whole much more nuclear and transmission and so on. And it was more of a popular movement that started the energy vendor there from what we heard in one of your earlier podcasts. So yeah. I think sometimes politics works your way, sometimes it doesn't. And I think you can't completely write it out. I really wish that the Australian policy environment was more science, fact, reason-based right now. I think that's one of the things that's really holding back Australia is just this kind of chaotic policy environment that really discourages investment. Well, I mean, just to kind of bring this question around specifically to renewables, look at what's in the EIA's new annual energy outlook on, on renewables. I mean, it's absurd. Their price projections are ridiculous. So how good is that going to be at informing policy? <laughs> I mean, their data is already out of date. You know, they're forecasting prices for decades from now that are the same as today. It's right. absurd. So in that sense, I think we're... I don't know if you would blame the way that they go about the data gathering or the forecasting or if the problem is somewhere in the bowels of the NEMS black box or if it's political. But either way, it's clearly not going to do a very good job at informing policy in the U.S. with respect to the energy transition. All right. And so taking that into the original question, you can take it both ways. You could say the EIA is an example of government not using data properly to inform policymaking. Or you could say, hey, the EIA is something we set up to create data to inform policymaking, and it's not doing a good job. Thank God we have other avenues to bring real-life information and data into policymaking, and we're not having to depend solely on the EIA. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right. So next we have a question from subscriber Lucia Yates, which was a response actually to our interview with Paul Denholm in episode 58. And in that episode, we talked about how market reforms, particularly the ways around which we value storage, could give us a faster and smoother path to energy transition. So Lucia wants to know, do you believe that these market reforms for storage, I suppose, will ever happen? And what are the major obstacles? Well, that's a really interesting but broad question. I've been thinking about this a lot lately and speaking at a panel next week with the Energy Storage Association. And I think you have to start a little bit at the beginning to answer this question. So the first thing to think about is how does storage get paid? And I see storage getting paid in three broad buckets. So one bucket is energy markets. So if you have an energy markets where prices can go up and down, storage can arbitrage. And the best market that way is probably the Texas market. They don't have a capacity market, so they don't depress energy prices by adding extra supply. And they let the energy market signals tell them you know, where scarcity is happening and where investment is worthwhile. And so what that means in Texas is you can look at 
for example, the day ahead prices. These are prices that are set a day ahead of when generation actually happens. And then the real time 15 minute increment prices. And if you look at average prices between those two windows, they're roughly the same, around $29 a megawatt hour, which is maybe a bit too low, reflecting the fact that there's a lot of capacity in the Texas market. If you ask what's the opportunity for arbitrage, so you imagine a system that buys the lowest hour or the lowest 15 minute block and then sells in the highest block. In the day ahead market, there's not enough money to finance the storage system that way. In the hour ahead market, if you've got perfect foresight, so it's a question of how efficient your algorithms are for guessing things, uh, there's plenty of money actually to be made, even though people aren't quite participating yet. And so that's one avenue for paying for storage. If that's not good enough and you want storage, other avenues are to define products. So you could define, instead of just defining a peak product, in California, we've got these ramping products basically resources that are paid to be available to ramp their output from the middle of the afternoon when there's too much solar to the evening when there's lots of demand and solar's falling off. And so far storage hasn't been able to play so well on that because there's all these cheap old coal plants that can pick up those payments for really cheap. But the California system operator is starting to change the rules for how they think about resource adequacy for this ramping, and they're creating kind of more real-time products, and maybe storage will have a chance in there. So there's definitely some evolution in policy around that modality for paying for storage. And then finally, another modality for paying for storage would be to pay for it the way we pay for transmission, and just to recognize an overall system need and put out a request for offer, build a storage system, and then pay for it out of the transmission access charges or something like that. There, we really have not seen much progress. The big system operators, I think, have been pretty open to the idea of using storage to resolve reliability problems. So in California, we've seen, for example, analysis around a local capacity issue where the system operator modeled using solar and storage instead of a local peaker. But in terms of providing economic value to the system, we haven't seen much. I heard there's one system in PJM being considered. And so you have this kind of energy market, this product version, and then kind of passive version. I think in each of those categories, there are ways in which we could improve policy to improve access for storage. In energy markets, we could create energy markets that are more reflective of the needs and have more volatility in them. In the products category, we can create products that are more adapted to the actual needs of the system and more granular. And some of those more granular products then will be better for storage. And we've seen some of that already happening. Some of the regulation products in PJM, this new flexible capacity resource type stuff in California. There was a failed attempt in Texas. And then on the passive front, buying storage to kind of improve the system. There, we're not quite seeing a lot of progress yet. So it sounds like, you know, generally speaking, you're pretty optimistic that some of these market reforms at least will happen. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, on slow timescales, change doesn't seem to ever be happening. <laughs> and then on the longer timescales of five, 10 years, there's a lot of change happening, but we don't notice it. Yeah, that's a good point. We've talked about the problem of mesofacts, you know, things that change slowly previously on the show. So 
In terms of the major obstacles that Lucia asked about, I mean, what do you think it is? I mean, is it just mainly just the inertia of policymaking at the ISO-RTO level? And of course, I suppose, obviously, the resistance of incumbents that are not going to be favored by supporting more storage. Well, that's a major part of it, I would say. Yeah. Obviously, cost has been part of it, and, and the cost of storage is dropping. That's changing the dynamics. And then... It's a new technology, so it's harder to finance, right? It's not fuel-based, it's all upfront money. And so there's a risk, you know, I can make an argument to somebody that you could make lots of money with your storage system in Texas with prices today, and they'll be like, yeah, but how can you guarantee me that for 10 years? Right, especially in an energy-only market where who knows what's gonna happen. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's part of what's been holding back. So mandates, which I think in general are not great ways to do policy, they can be a good way to jumpstart these markets. So we've seen mandates jumpstarting storage in California and now in Massachusetts, New York. And I think those are important developments because technology will likely need. And so it's good to kind of prime the pump, basically. Yeah. Okay. All right. Enough with these softball questions. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's get into the juicy technical ones. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Since most of the show has been about Australia, why not start with a bit of exciting news from there? Following on its successful deployment last fall of the world's largest battery in South Australia, the 100-megawatt Hornsdale Power Reserve, Tesla has announced a new deal with the South Australian government in which it will give solar systems and batteries to at least 50,000 homes free of charge. The cost of the project will be financed by the sale of electricity from the solar systems, and a retailer, for which the government will issue a solicitation, will be able to draw power from the storage and solar systems. That's about all the information we have on the project at this time. But just to try to estimate the size of the project, 50,000 homes with 3.15 kilowatt solar systems, which is the Australian average, would amount to a 158 megawatt virtual power plant. 
Item 2. After two shameful displays of political theater in the form of shutting down the federal government for a few hours, the U.S. Congress finally passed a budget bill that President Trump signed. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.